What up, Rail Split Nation? Hopefully you're enjoying the summer, starting to get hot out. I know I'm roasting. Um, and to help cool you down, we're going to be taking a look at Gettysburg today on the newest episode of The Rail Splitter. This is Rail Split Nick um, here. So, you know, for those of you walking on this beautiful night listening to us or waking up to a cup of cocoa and drinking, uh, we're glad to have you. I'm joined by the greatest Canadian I know, and I would argue the greatest Canadian in general. Uh, Mary, what up? Hey, Rail Splitters, and thank you for that, Nick. And I just have to say, like, when um when Jerry A and I are talking about you, like Jerry often says rail splitter stangy. I like that. I would prefer he did rail split stangy, but I don't know. Uh, we were in we were in Sandusky, Ohio on the weekend and we drove by this one street and Jerry was like, Oh, it's Stangy's street. It's awesome. Rail splitter stangy has a street. I wonder if Jer feels like he knows me intimately since he listens to me in his headphones as he edits our show. He probably does. So, hey, Jer, what's up? <laughs> Thank you for editing our show. Um, and of course, with us in spirit, although that makes it sound like he's dead, which he is not. No, he's not. He's in a hotel room with shitty Wi-Fi, apparently. In Little Rock, Arkansas, deep down in Confederate land, uh, Jeremy who I believe is getting close to returning. So, And I think he will be going somewhere Civil War located here this week and probably will be uh, instaing out or tweeting out or maybe both to Rail Split Nation. So um, hopefully him and his family are having a good time down there. I'm sure they're sweating in Little Rock. So oh. I think kind of Little Rock in general. Uh, I'm sorry to any Little Rock fans. That was me to me. It's not like you live in Buffalo, you know, the, Ooh. the homeland of Fillmore. I think you just threw Kathleen some shade there. She's one of our listeners, and she, oh, I she, think she's from Buffalo originally. Sorry, Ka- sorry Kathleen. Kathleen, that's not directed at you. That is directed at Miller Fillmore. <laughs> I missed a couple episodes here in the most recent past, so ripping on him. So that was the only purpose for that. Anyway, so we are here. Let's get on with the show. Yep. There's a lot to cover. Uh, to be honest, we know that this is definitely going to be a two-parter, but it could end up being a three-parter. We just aren't sure at this point. That was my brother calling into the show right there. So if you heard that, I owe everybody a beer. Would he like to be uh, a guest? <laughs> dude, he would like to be a guest, and I refuse to let him be a guest. Oh, come on. So, no, we Nick's don't. brother, <laughs> you need to be a guest on our show. Contact me. <laughs> Hopefully he stopped listening to the show. So anyways, um, before I was distracted by him, my mom's been on the show once, so yeah, that, that was amazing. Uh, shout out to rail splitter, Sandy. Um, okay. I totally forgot where we're at. Uh, we're at the this could the easily turn into a three parter. Yes. So, um, just bear with us. We're just going to see how we go through it. It will not be any longer than the three parter. I don't believe anyway. No. So, um, yeah. So, leaking in the news, what you got, Mary? 
We have, um, there is a new acquisition for the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, and it is a Bible that uh, was presented to Abraham Lincoln by, um, so engraved on the front cover of the words, to Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, from the Ladies of the Citizens Volunteer Hospital of Philadelphia. And the uh, Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum acquired this very recently. Um, so it's like another Bible. Which, again, Lincoln's religion has been debated quite extensively in, like, the field of Lincoln research and all that. And there's a lot of debate as to, you know, where he fell with his religion. Um, One of my friends, uh, Jessica, tweeted out today that she thinks he's agnostic, and I'm inclined to agree with her on that. And um, the director, or the head of acquisitions for the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum said... The donation of this Bible offers a new opportunity to reflect on Lincoln's religious beliefs, which I think are really important, especially um, going throughout his presidency, you can see that he becomes more and more spiritual. So the Bible is of much comfort to him, as it was for um, many soldiers during the Civil War. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, Lincoln and his religious views is definitely something that is not clear cut. Um, a lot of that's open for interpretation, um, and I agree. I think the Bible kind of gives us a chance to kind of reflect on that. Something that we haven't really dived into deep on the show. I know we were just talking before we went on air when we did our most recent book club. Um, what was the book? Uh, Lincoln's Greatest Speech by Ronald C. White, and there was that chapter that we were not overly fond of about his religious beliefs. But overall, the the book was yeah. great. Yeah. But that yeah, chapter Ronald dragged. C. White dives pretty pretty deep in on kind of Lincoln and religion there. So that's a good source to go to. Um, I think there might be another book out there I came across. I'm sure there is, mm, Lincoln the, and his religious views. So. There's, there's there's so many religious groups that, that try to claim him and all that, but I think he was just kind of like he had, I think he attended a Presbyterian church in Washington, mm-hmm. but his beliefs seem more, I guess, like agnostic, I think. I yeah, know. I can see that. I think... Yeah. I mean, like a lot of people at that time, he definitely had read the Bible, um, you know, probably one of the few books that his family had access mm-hmm. to. Um, you know, he's known to have quote the Bible, use different language in many of his speeches. So um, I definitely think he was religious. I don't know if he ever truly identified with a certain denomination, though, yeah. I would argue. Um, but yeah, cool thing for the library, you know. Yeah. I'm sure they're excited to have it, stoked. It's always cool. Um, it's probably one of those things that gets kind of put on that traveling display that we heard Christian talk about last episode. Mm-hmm. So, um, is it out displayed yet, or they just got it right? I I think it is on display now because okay, the cool. first article I read was from June nineteenth, and they said it was going to be on display the following Thursday. So that would be today. Yeah. All right. So, well, today for you and me. Yeah. Tomorrow. Which actually, hey, it's on display when you're listening to this. Yes, so get yeah. your asses to the Lincoln Library, get a membership. I just renewed my membership down there. Um, so, um, great place. But being as today is actually tomorrow, June 28th, which is a significant day in the Civil War in 1863, which lead oh. we'll get to in a few min- We'll get to in a few minutes, leading into the what our episode is about. That's a beautiful segue. That's what they call it in the biz. Yes. Um, but first, we want to discuss the sources that we used. Yes. 
You want to go ahead first, or you want me to go? Um, I, I can start. I used uh, Gettysburg, A Testing of Courage by Noah Andre Trudeau, as well as Searching for George Gordon Mead, which is like the General Mead Bible in one of my favorite books. I need to read it again. Um, and I also used American Battlefield Trust as well, or just they're just battlefields now for um, maps and all that, because I have a really tough time wrapping my mind around where the troops were and what the hell was happening. I use, I have a great Civil War map book. I got it when I took a Civil War class in college. A Battlefield Atlas of the American Civil War by Craig Simmons. And they also, I don't know if it's the same person, but there is specifically Gettysburg map one, although I couldn't find where it was at in the clutter of books in my office here. But that I bought, you can buy it at the bookstore. It's kind of like this thin hardcover, and it's great. I took it out with me. I've talked about this on the show. Um, despite, you know, uh, Kira um, not being a big fan, I will go out with the Atlas in my hand and walk the battlefield. I will. And I've even been knowing, like, the first battle, like the Manassas battlefield, I was, like, reading it as we were walking. Not necessarily the best to do with somebody else. That, that would be me. I always have a map with me. And actually, Craig Simmons, he wrote... Um, he wrote one of my favorite biographies um, about, well, it's one of the only biographies about Patrick Claiborne, the Stonewall, Stonewall of the West. He's an excellent author. Like he's a very, very good writer. And then I was going to go the Trudeau route, but I decided before I did it, I went online. I'm just like best Gettysburg books and all these lists popped up, different historians. Uh, the Trudeau one showed up, but the one that I kept coming across was, the Gettysburg Campaign, A Study in Command by Edward B. Coddington. Ooh, so a lot nice. of people reference this. I, uh, this was written. It's definitely not a recent one. The copyright on this originally is 1968. Um, so, And then I have a reprint version, which was done in 79. And I've gotten through the first two days of the book, and I really enjoy it. He does a great job. And then I think a lot, like, if you read Stephen Sears, he kind of just mm-hmm. lays it out what took place. He does. I actually I know, used him, too, for as a And I've read that one about Gettysburg, which it's definitely a good read. It's a great read. Coddington takes a little bit more of approach to some of the questions that popped up, such as, you know, Stuart being late, Yule not being aggressive. And he kind of addresses those questions, which you don't always get in these battle books. No. Which I kind of enjoyed. Um, and he kind of gives his viewpoint on that, and he backs it up, and he actually refutes other people's viewpoints. And I've really have enjoyed reading it, so I would highly recommend it. And I think it's kind of one that has kind of got lost in the shuffle a little, just mm-hmm. because it's not as recent. So yeah, I um, um, I enjoyed Trudeau for the same reason because he does actually address some of those issues, and he's he also goes to the personal letters that the soldiers wrote. So you're really on the ground during the battle. And he also looks at what the citizens were doing too, which was really, which was really, really interesting. Um, He takes, he's very pro mead, which I am all for that. I will defend that man for the rest of my life. Um, And he's also very pro long street when it comes to Pickett's charge, but that is for another episode. Yeah. Yes. We're definitely for sure. Dedicating whole episode to day three Pickett's charge. Um, and there's a great book I've come across that I'm going to try to read. It'll depend on how many episodes in between we have. 
Um, it's like Henry Panzer, Panzer. Mm-hmm. He did like a three book series. Are you familiar with this? I've heard of it before. Yeah. So, and that was on a ton of the list too that I came across. But needless to say, that's the sources we used. Uh, we just thought we should start doing that more. I think we might try to put that in our notes a little bit more. Yeah. The too, um, so. yeah. I asked on Facebook, and people said they would like that. And I just thought of a couple others. I I used um, Emerging Civil War has like books about everything, and they're they're short, sweet. Um, they usually include a tour of the battlefield as well. So I used um, their book on day one for for this, which is called Fight. I think it's called Fight Like the Devil. I hope I'm getting that right. And we've both been to the battlefield as well. And we've both been there relatively recently. I know you more recently mm-hmm. than me. So we kind of have a little bit of idea, kind of the layout. Um, so I'm sure we'll be drawn for that. So needless to say, we ain't pulling this out of our ass. I will admit it's a little nerve wracking to Gettysburg uh, because I'm sure my dumbass will make a mistake at some point, which I'm sure our listeners will be able to identify and call us out on. No. Um, and I'm sure we'll state some opinions. So if you disagree, definitely bring that up in the Facebook chat. Um, we would love to see the discussion on that. But anyways, Mary, why don't you get us rolling here? Okay, Gettysburg. Well, well, before we begin, Nick, look at my mug. Dude, Look, look who's got- on my mug. George, me, that's good, but you got too many damn mugs. No, I don't. You can never have enough mugs. See, I have one for every episode, literally. <laughs> I saw your tweet with me, and I, I wish <laughs> Twitter had a thumbs down option, because that's what I would have given it. That's why I I went looking in my mugs, and I wanted my Reynolds one, but I apparently I used it, so it's in the dishwasher, so I'm like, ah, mead. You know what? I was at the Lincoln Museum. We were going through the gift shop. You saw mugs? And I'm like, there's all sorts of mugs, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like looking at it. And the kid's like, oh, we should get a mug. And then I was like, yeah, maybe. And then I'm <laughs> no. like, no, I can't get a damn mug. I'm not getting a mug. So needless to say, I came back with no mugs. Oh, that's disappointing. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, anyway, okay. So um, the Battle of Gettysburg. So mid-June of 1863, General Lee is looking to invade the North and resupply his army. Um, so keep in mind that this is right after the Battle of Chancellorsville, so Meade is a little bit arrogant because that was a victory, and he's overconfident in his army, um, and we're going to see that show through a little bit more um, as the episodes progress. So he crosses into Pennsylvania, and when he does that, he can threaten Baltimore, Philadelphia, as well as Washington, D.C., So Lee issues some orders that are to gather provisions. The interesting thing about this is they're a lot like the orders that Sherman issued on his march to the sea, but Lee's orders, I find they don't get mentioned too much when people are talking about his invasion of Pennsylvania. Um, But the one thing that Lee does that Sherman does not is Lee rounds up freed slaves and he takes them prisoner and sends them south again. Or for some of them... For the first time. Yes, exactly. They yeah, yeah. They were born free somebody. and they are like, it's, it's not a good situation. And um, some of Lee's men are going into towns in, in Pennsylvania and they're demanding tribute, basically tribute or we will burn your town. So it's not. Can you imagine being a freed African-American. I can't even imagine. Like, rounded up. Yep. Thrown to the south, somewhere you've never... I mean, it would suck regardless, but, like, this is just... It's insane. 
Yeah. And there was one of the accounts in Trudeau's book where it was a citizen recounting that all of a sudden she was talking about in her diary, all of a sudden, like, you know, she said all the African-Americans just fled because they'd heard rumors of what was happening and they just fled from Gettysburg. And to me, this is like to the Lee apologists out there. I mean, this is something he easily did not have to do. Exactly. Like nobody would have faulted him for that. If anything, it's probably almost a waste of resources and time to do this. Because it's like, what military logistical purpose does this serve him at this point? I wouldn't think any. Yeah, I I get, I get, you know, foraging. But yes, I understand. Yeah, then you got to have, you got to give personnel to watch them. Yep. And to get them back, it just seems like a waste of military resources just from that. On top of the, inhumane act and morally wrong act that it is. So I'm just saying, you know, this is something that Lee was not politically, socially, or militarily forced to do. This Mm -hmm. is something he decided to do, which is something that continues to get ignored with his character by a great portion of, you know, uh, people who look back on history. Yeah, and I'm I'm sitting here doing the applause like preach thing with Nick right now because yeah. I, I I completely agree with what he's saying about it and it's just there's I mean as someone who studies and researches Sherman to the point of obsession, which I freely admit, you know I always hear oh well he ransacked the countryside you know and he ripped up the railways and he made Sherman's neckties. It's like well, guess what he wasn't doing what Lee did up in Pennsylvania and in Maryland and all that like. Well, Sherman, like the forging of the food, that serves a military purpose. Yeah, and so the ripping really... up of all that stuff serves a military purpose. Yeah. To kill their war machine, to continue to produce stuff. That's understandable. That's to be expected. Yeah. That is war. So, but yeah. Sorry. No. Went off on a rant. Apologize. No, that, but that's what we're about at the Rail Splitter. We said going into this, like, you know, we had a point where we wanted to stop tonight. We were like, eh, we might have to make this three episodes. We're going to see how it goes. Um, at this point, it's probably leaning that way. <laughs> it is. But you know what? If it's a good discussion, that's what matters. Um, so June 29th, Lee's Army of Northern Virginia crosses the Susquehanna River. They're now opposite Harrisburg. Um, and prior to this, there have been some of the Confederate Army in Gettysburg, and they've been there. I think it was, was it Ewell or was it Early who went there and was like, I want tribute? And then they left. I think it was early. Yeah, I, I think so, say. too. Yeah, I think it was Jewel early. Um, so that brings us to June 30 or to, um, no, June 28th, actually. Um, Meade is made commander of the Army of the Potomac at about 3 a.m. Some dude yeah. comes into his tent and is like, hey, guess what? You're commanding this show now. And he's like, no, <laughs> I want it to be Reynolds. Yeah, basically, it's just kind of. Hooker and Halleck just hit a breaking point. I think what the, yep. what the Harper's Ferry issue was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yep. Hooker basically wanted to get everybody out of there. Um, Halleck didn't want to do that. Ironically, Meade pretty much ends up doing exactly what Hooker wanted to do. Yeah. Um, he does a little bit more diplomatically, though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you put in the notes here, well, worst week on the job. Yeah, he's about I mean, to... I think I tweeted one time, it's like, you know, some random office person, like, first week on the job and I couldn't work the photocopier, General Meade, hold my beer. 
Like he does have the worst first week on the job. Um, So, you know, once he kind of is like, no, this isn't for me, it should be Reynolds, which he's constantly arguing for Reynolds to have it. He finally resigns himself to the fact that he has to command the Army of the Potomac. And he says, well, I have been tried and condemned without a hearing, and I suppose I shall have to go to execution. But yeah. I, I, I think that's why he was the perfect man to do it, because he's not the cult of personality that McClellan was. He doesn't have the overconfidence of Hooker, and he doesn't have the underconfidence of Burnside. He is the less dreamy John Snow of the Army of the Potomac. He is. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Never exactly, wanted to come exactly. in and got stuck with it and miserable the whole time. Yep. I think he's a little bit more temperamental than John. But, oh, uh, yeah. Like, I, I like how, like, whenever somebody quotes Mead, it's always without profanity. I add in, like, a whole bunch of profane stuff because apparently he was very profane when speaking yeah. to people. Yeah, I mean, Mead's got a huge challenge. I mean, Lee's causing havoc up in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. Ultimately, you know, lead is the main objective. However, Lincoln and Halleck are continually worried about the defense of, of D.C. Yep. So he's kind of almost got to fight this covering operation, which kind of leads to him having this defensive mindset. Yeah, and that's where the Pipe Creek Circular comes into yes. play. And then I'll let you go ahead. Uh, so the Pipe Creek plan was Meade made this document called the Pipe Creek Circular, and it was supposed to have been distributed to all the Corps commanders, but something happened and it wasn't. And this was a defensive battle against Lee. And Meade envisioned the Army's Pipe Creek line running from the town of Manchester all the way west to Middles- Middleburg. Um, so he would be in a strong defensive position with good supply lines. And the Army of the Pon- Potomac would have been placed squarely between Lee and and Washington and Baltimore. So it's protecting that area. Um, But Meade knew when he issued this circular that um, he ominously wrote, developments may cause the commanding general to assume the offensive from his present position. So in other words, this this shit could happen anywhere. It's not necessarily going to be at Pipe Creek, but good for him for drawing up that plan. And then Coddington, in his book, spends a lot of time talking about how people use this order against Meade, kind of saying that he never really wanted to fight at Gettysburg. But like you just said, he had a provision in there, kind of understanding Mm -hmm. that, you know, reality might, this is a plan, and he was not tied to this plan. You know, as any good general, you have a game plan, but you're willing to adapt when opportunity presents itself. And so I think people unfairly sometimes use that against Meade to show that he was not trying to be aggressive um, because it's not like he sat on his ass during Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Now, could you criticize him for his lack of follow-up on Lee? Yes. And I think that's where a lot of time this all gets put in. It's mm-hmm. just kind of cherry-picking stuff and not looking at the context. Yep. No, so. I, I completely agree with you. It's kind of – he's – and as I was reading about the Pipe Creek plan, I thought, my God, Meade is the exact opposite of Braxton Bragg. Like, if this had been Braxton Bragg, Bragg would have been like, no, I want to fight here because I drew up this plan and I'm not coming to Gettysburg at all. Yes. Because that's, ba- that's basically what he did at Chickamauga. He said, no, we haven't won the battle because it hasn't been fought my way. There's one distinct difference between Hooker 
uh, Command and uh, Meads is that Mead has more authority pretty much to grant he has basic authority over anyone directly or indirectly involved in the army. This means he can make leadership decisions without having to go to Halleck or Lincoln. So if he wants somebody like Hancock to leapfrog some other people or higher in rank, he has that ability, which he will do with Reynolds and Hancock mm-hmm. um, to great success. And also like you just think about the first 24 hours. He's put in command. He finds it out early in the morning. He basically gets his whole army concentrated about 40 miles out of Gettysburg, close to Frederick. He organizes a 20-mile mile march, and he has them up early in the morning to do that, all on the first day. Yep. That is rather remarkable. Puts them in a position where they have multiple access and avenues to get people there and to maneuver is really remarkable. And in Coddington's book, he quotes General A. A. Humphrey saying, I take it, too, that this army has never moved so skillfully before as it has been during Meade's command. Mm-hmm. So this just shows that Meade is definitely a competent general. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to organize. He knows how to lead. So I apologize for interrupting you. No, well said. And again, like the preach gif is going in my head right now. That was that's exactly how I feel about me too. That he, like, he's the perfect person. He's who he's exactly who they needed at this time. And uh, on June thirtieth, we find him at now. It's spelled T A N E Y. So you would think Tanny Town, but it's actually pronounced Tawny Town, as I learned from Tom Huntington's book about Mead. So, false. pardon? I'm saying that's false. They're wrong in how to say it. <laughs> Tawny Town. I'm just joking. It's Tawny I'm Town. Just anyway, Meade is in Tawny Town. Um, he's about 14 miles from Gettysburg, and he writes his wife um, before he goes to bed. I continue well, but much oppressed with a sense of responsibility and the magnitude of the great interests entrusted to me. Pray for me and beseech our Heavenly Father to permit me to be an instrument to save my country and advance a just cause. So there's a very interesting words from him. He also seems to have a sense of what's going to happen the next day. Um, and that seems to be a pattern amongst a few of the key players on day one. And that includes Buford as well. So General John Buford, uh, he's commanding cavalry in the Army of the Potomac, and he is a badass played by sam elliott in the movie gettysburg um which google it on youtube just sam elliott gettysburg and watch that speech about the high ground um so buford is riding around the countryside that surrounds gettysburg and he's doing his best to get an idea of what could happen the next day and this shows his talent he's looking for areas that are gonna be where the confederates are going to want to get. So where he needs to place his troops to hold back because he knows that the Confederates are going to invade, oddly enough, from the north. And he tells his men, look out for campfires during the night and for dust in the morning. And Buford also informs Meade of the situation at Gettysburg. And Meade responds that Buford needs to hold the line and that support will come the next day from Reynolds and Howard. And this is very smart on Meade's part. You know, Meade has this pipe circular plan, like the Pipe Creek Circular in place. But he is willing to send, you know, his first corps and his 11 corps to back up Buford just in case. And that really shows, you know, like Meade is 
he's very talented when it comes to this. Agreed. Mead is a badass. We give a lot of Mead a lot of love on this show. We do. Mead Mead needs the love though. And so I mean I mean we also gave Hook we ended up giving Hooker a lot of love too. I think we all came around to or you and I came around to really liking Hooker at the end of the the episodes we did about him. Yeah, they should do a Hooker biopic. Oh just, God. <laughs> be interesting. He'd be like the anti hero. It's all about like the anti hero <laughs> now on like series and stuff. Mead's like just too curmudgeon-y. He's too down all the time. I'd love to see a Mead biopic. No way. That'd be terrible. Yeah, grumpy and everything else. That would be amazing. We could do it a cartoon and it'd be a snapping turtle. Exactly. Actually, uh, my friend Jen, she she's an artist and she did a cartoon of Mead as a snapping turtle. It, it's amazing. I oh, should see. Cool. I should um, actually. I'll see if she'll let me post it from the Rail Splitter account because it's really cool. Um. So this leads us into July the 1st, day one of Gettysburg. Do we want to talk about Jeb at this point? Oh, yes. Where, where, where the F is Jeb? That's a good question. <laughs> Jeb, at this point, is making his way around the Union Army. And I don't know. Do you have stuff you want to talk about between the order that Lee gave him and Jeb? No, just that he is. Well, I think today, like the 27th he's engaged in a battle which delays him from getting to lee apparently it delays him for quite a few days yeah he gets blown down a couple times yeah yeah to me and coddington was saying this too so this is kind of where i'm getting and i kind of agreed with his assessment of this he points to june 30th as a day that really hurt stewart um because by this time stewart is lugging around and hauling a captured wagon train. He has 400 prisoners. Obviously, this is making him less mobile. Why would he do that? Because I think he wants... You know, at this point, up to this point, Jeb is kind of like... Probably one of the heroes, one of the icons in the South. I mean, you know, he had the personality, the charisma, the papers were attracted to him. Um, So, you know... He's probably confident as well, mm-hmm. um, just like Lee was, but he's much more of a showman than Lee was. Um, so, you know, I think he wanted kind of that spoils of war there to have this, to put it on display, to yeah. get recognition. And then, so June 30th, he's coming up to Hanover, and he runs into Kilpatrick's Union Division Cavalry. And it actually catches Kilpatrick by surprise, but the problem is... Because of this train of supplies, the prisoners, he's not able to really get in an engagement. It's more of a defensive. It kind of ends up as a draw. And because of this, he has to go five miles east now, the opposite direction where he needs to be. And because he's worried about his left flank, he won't actually push uh, March until nightfall. So then he gets out there at nightfall pushes his guy through a 20-mile push that evening where they eventually rest. And then because of the wagon train, because of the five-mile detour, and because of the wait until night, all three of those factors contribute to the point that where Ewell and Early hit Gettysburg on July 1st, Mm -hmm. he's only hitting basically Dover, Um, which is still about 20 or so miles away from Gettysburg at this point. Yeah. So Coddington's very critical of him keeping that wagon train. If he would have just cut that loose, you know, just 
get rid of the prisoners. Uh, you know, I, how you do that, I don't know. Maybe just let them go. That's really what bogged him down. And this day 30th is just like all these other factors. He's just not going to get there in time. No. And, and we know, and this has been stressed so much, and this really hurts Lee because he just doesn't have the logistical support that he's been so used to having because Stewart up to this point had been so reliable. Yep, and and Lee's getting pissed off at this point because he doesn't have he's the when you're the cavalry, you know, not like you are also the eyes and ears of the army to scout ahead because you're on horses, you can move a lot quicker. And Jeb's just not doing that. And I do agree with you. Like I think it went to his head. He was just like, "Oh, I can do, you know, spoils of war, bring it in." But he got bogged down by it, you know, and I mean, his nickname was Beauty. And I think he was just, you know, kind of the celebrity beauty. beauty, beauty, kind of a weak nickname. <laughs> Have you seen him without a beard before? No, he's got this. He's, ba- he's got a baby face. It's really weird. That's what I am without my beard. Um they should have called him Handsome Jeb. That handsome. No, I don't like. There is this one T-shirt out there that has his picture on it, and it just says "Jine," like the song "Jine the Calvary," <laughs> which is one of my favorite Civil War songs. I would love to have that shirt if it had Buford on it. Yes, Buford's face and then Jine. Can't wear a Confederate shirt. No, General. No. Speaking of Buford, this now brings us to July first. Yes. And then um, I know you love Buford, so I will give you the honors. Yeah. Actually, we're going to talk about Reynolds first. It's 4 a.m. July the 1st, and Reynolds is sleeping in a tavern, and he gets awakened. <laughs> Not like Hooker, who would have been passed out in a tavern. Yeah, like, like, oh, no. Reynolds is asleep, apparently using his saddle as a pillow. And uh, Trudeau tells us he does not get up immediately, but instead lays quietly with one hand under his head while Meade's orders were read aloud, a recitation he had repeated twice to make sure all the details had registered. So Meade is telling him to, um, you know, get the F to Gettysburg, because that's probably what Meade would have said to him. Um, the first, so the 1st Corps, which is commanded by Reynolds, and the 11th Corps, which is commanded by Howard, are to get to Gettysburg. The 3rd Corps, um, which I think is Sickles? I think i'm 100 sure to go to emmitsburg and then the 12th corps is to go to two taverns and i think that's sedgwick i had this all written down it's leaving me Um, i think so so then at gettysburg you have buford who only has a small number of men compared to what the confederates have and knowing this he has his troops occupy three ridges west of gettysburg so Hare, mcpherson and seminary In occupying these three ridges, it's going to buy time for Reynolds and Howard to arrive. In other words, Buford can hold back the Confederates so that they do not take the high ground. Um, And again, as I mentioned before, the Confederates are coming at them from the north. It's a great part of the battlefield. It is my favorite. Because you had the road coming right in. Mm -hmm. And they got like the markers of kind of where Buford was at. And then... It's you could like really visualize it too, and you get out there early. Um, it's because I think I don't even know what time it was when it all happened. Well, when you drive in, like there's this statue yeah. of Buford, and he's just looking off to the to the north, and then Reynolds is right behind him on his horse. And yeah, it's awesome. I love that. And then you see like the seminary where Buford was in that cupola on June 30th and July the first. Which, by the way, that is now a museum about the first day of Gettysburg. If you oh, go to really? yeah, it's called the Seminary Ridge Museum, 
devote it to the first day, visit it. I highly recommend the tour of the cupola. It is worth every penny to see how, his view. How new is that museum? Um, it was there when I was there in 2017. Okay. Or twenty, yeah, twenty seventeen, and it was still there when I was there twenty eighteen as well. Obviously, I think it's a, I don't know, maybe ten years old. Really, I was not aware of that when we were out there. I'll yeah, no, it's not. Cool. It's not very well known, so I always tell people about it. But just being up in that cupola, like obviously the tour, co- like to go up there, it's. I think it was like twenty some dollars, but I would pay it again to go up there and see his vantage point and what he could see from there. Um. So when Reynolds and Howard arrive, Buford has realized that they're eventually going to need to occupy Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge, and Culp's Hill. Which, you know, spoiler alert, the Union Army is going to occupy those by the end of day one. And at 7.30 a.m., that is when the first shots are fired because Lieutenant Marcellus Jones sees Confederate General Henry Heth's troops marching along the road and... Jones looks to one of his um, one of his men and says, "Give me the honor of opening this ball." And he just fires upon Hess's men, and that's the opening f- opening shot there. And it, the funny thing about Heth is his commanding general is A.P. Hill, and Hill had told him, "Do not bring an engagement. <laughs> like, don't start shit. Don't start a fight." And Lee had wanted the same thing. Lee was like, "No, don't don't do this. We don't need a fight here." Um, and Lee, the reason he doesn't want to battle, he's blind because yep. Stuart's, uh, frolicking through Pennsylvania somewhere. <laughs> Frolicking around with yep. his covered wagon train. Exactly. Um, so day one at Gettysburg, there's three phases of the battle that happen. And all day on day one, it is just, um, a quarter of the army of the Potomac fighting a third of Lee's army of Northern Virginia. And that figure still astounds me that that's all that is fighting on day one. Yeah. Like I knew that, but I never really like think that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, when you, when you see where they, when you see where day one happens, like it's such a small area and you know, by the third phase Rhodes is just pummeling them with artillery, um, which I think is over where the peace light Memorial is. It's over in that area. Mm-hmm. And he's pummeling them, and the Union troops are just running through town. And that's where they take up um, their positioning on Cemetery yeah, cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge, and Culp's Hill. Um, so the day basically is just about keeping the Confederates off the high ground and holding them back until tr- more troops can arrive to reinforce Buford. Um, so by at 9 a.m., there's these delay tactics that Buford brilliantly uses and his men are firing at the rebels from behind fence posts with rapid fire from breech loading carbines and this meant they didn't have to stand to reload and so they could safely do it behind cover and they're just like you know giving it all they have and they're outnumbered and you know Hess men are fully prepared for battle and their battle line would have been around 2,900 and is made up of General Archer's men from Alabama and Tennessee and Joe Davis's men from Mississippi and North Carolina. And at 10 a.m., you have the arrival of General John Reynolds. And he goes up to Buford and he says, what goes, John? And Buford responds, there's the devil to pay. And he points towards where the Confederates are. 
So Reynolds decides to go and check things out for himself. And he goes towards Earp's Woods, which is now called Reynolds Woods, with the Iron Brigade, which is led by Solomon Meredith. And the Iron Brigade is a Western Brigade, so they're made up of um, men from Michigan, Wisconsin, and Indiana. So 10.30 a.m., the Union has been pushed, the Union Army has been pushed back to near McPherson's Ridge, and General Reynolds is advancing with the Iron Brigade towards Erbst Woods, and he's killed. And his last words are, forward men, for God's sakes, forward, and drive those fellows out of the woods. He will be the highest-ranking officer killed on day on, during the Battle of Gettysburg. There's a cool statue right where he yep. is uh, shot to. I believe he was, like, turning around, wasn't he, and shot? Yeah, yeah, he was just turning around, and he was hit, like, in the back of the head and just killed instantly. And then... Go ahead. There's a house, and I walked by it when I was there in November. It's on... I think it's on Steinware. And there's a little plaque on the outside of this house, and it says, this is where John Reynolds' body was brought. Oh, wow. It was really eerie walking by that house every day. See that... Yeah, I mean, and then that kind of leads to a major shift mm-hmm. uh, in the battle there because then it kind of falls on General Howard, who was just torn up at uh, Chancellorsville and Doubleday. Yeah. Uh, the adventure of baseball, but not the adventure of baseball. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they get some criticism on how they handle stuff on day one. Um. Coddington really is kind of goes after Doubleday because, you know, Reynolds goes there. He sets up kind of shop on McPherson's Ridge. But that wasn't like Reynolds going in there and saying, this is where we have to make our stand. Yeah. So his criticism on Doubleday is that Doubleday should have recognized the layout because it goes like McPherson's Ridge to kind of a flatter area to Seminary mm-hmm. Ridge. And Coddington's argument was that Doubleday should have pulled back to Seminary Ridge put up some, you know, some defensive, set up for a defensive there, and then it'll only protect McPherson's Ridge, not as the main objective, but as slowing down the Confederates to fall back to Seminary Ridge, which Doubleday does not do. No. And then the other problem is, so Doubleday's kind of facing that northeast direction out of Gettysburg, and then directly north of Gettysburg is Howard, and his line is about too far north Mm -hmm. and the argument was he should have pulled back a little bit closer to the town because that would have been a little bit easier to have defended and it would have put the confederates um army out into a more open area to where union artillery would have been uh had more of an impact now are they able to hold this position probably not because they're outnumbered but this could have maybe even slowed them down even more um, so there is some criticism there for that. At the end of the day, that doesn't get done, and they are forced to flee and retreat through the city like you were yeah. talking about. Yeah, like, they just, they seem kind of lost at, you know, during this part. Although, Trudeau does say that Doubleday has his best command hours here, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, like, you have this, like, Reynolds is killed, and everybody's like, oh, what do we do? Um, and then... So that brings us to one o'clock where Lee finally starts making his way to Gettysburg. And before leaving, he instructs Major Brown to find out where the hell Stuart is. 
Yeah, that was a waste like of time. Like finding a needle in a haystack. <laughs> Where in the world is Carmen San Diego comes to mind? Um, Ooh, great game. Yep. And Lee is described as being as uneasy and ir- irritated by Stuart's conduct. So I'm sure with each passing minute, he's getting progressively more not happy about it. And then at around 1.30, Hancock is on his way to Gettysburg. Um, Meade has decided he's going to stay in Tawnytown um, because he still wants to, he would prefer to fight there, but he's realizing, you know, shit's going down at Gettysburg and better get somebody there to have a look at it. And this is another way which Meade's talent shines through. So right now, Howard is the highest ranking officer and therefore in command at Gettysburg because Meade is not there. Where the battle's happening, the highest ranking officer's in command, if I'm to understand it correctly, Mm -hmm. if Meade's not present. But Meade doesn't know Howard as well as he knows Hancock. He and Hancock are friends, and Meade just says, you're going to go to Gettysburg, and you're going to determine if that's where we're going to fight. And Hancock's all, well, Howard's higher ranking than Meade. Meade just says, I don't care. Go, Go do it. This is my order. And, um... As he left, General Hancock would recall that Meade had made up his mind to fight a battle on what was known as Pipe Creek, which presented more favorable features than any other position he could see. So Meade still hasn't seen Gettysburg at this point. Mm-hmm. And um, so what Meade's done shows his trust in Hancock, and this is one of his strengths. And some people see this as Meade being passive, but I think it shows him as being a good commander, that he's going to stay back you know, where he thinks the fight should be, but he's going to send another man to Gettysburg to find out. Cause, and even at this point at one thirty, I don't think he knows that Reynolds is dead. He doesn't find out till after Hancock's left. Um, but before Hancock will get to Gettysburg, phase two is underway. And so union forces, like you said, Nick, I think they're, they have a semicircle position from West to North, right? Of the town. Yeah. And Confederate troops under Ewell Rhodes and early are launching a massive assault. Yep. On them. And then um, at two o'clock, Howard finally moves out to McPherson's Ridge. And then actually Sears throws a bit of shade towards him saying tactical wisdom called for pulling the first corps back to a more easily defended seminary ridge. If such tactical wisdom occurred to Howard, it was but a belated thought. Yep. Yeah, because I was kind of talking like Howard didn't deserve any blame, but he is kind of the man in charge at this yeah. point before Hancock gets mm-hmm. there. So he should have been kind of, if Doubleday didn't see it himself, Howard should have been the one yeah. to make that recommendation as well. Yeah. So, yep. And so at four o'clock, Hancock arrives and he says that I think this is the strongest position by nature upon which to fight a battle that I've ever, ever saw. And... So Hancock needs to go to tell Howard that he's no longer in command. And Howard does protesting. He's the senior officer, but Hancock responds with, I'm aware of that, General, but I have written orders from General Meade. In other words, tough shit, dude. This, yeah. is, th- this is what's going down, and this is what's happening right now. Tough shit, dude, and your Chancellorville record doesn't look too good. Yeah, like, not boating well for you. <laughs> Meade likes me better. I'm the favorite child right now. Yeah. How do you feel Get about the hell that? Out. Get out of here, Howard. <laughs> do what you do best. Go retreat. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's true, though. 
So Carl Schwer's writing um, of the respect that came to her side between Hancock and Howard at Gettysburg said, Howard, in spite of his heart sore, cooperated so loyally with Hancock that it would have been hard to tell which of the two was the commander and which the subordinate. So I think that's also really telling of Howard that he was able to kind of, quote unquote, get over it and be thinking this is the way it is. I'll just deal with it. And we'll go from there because there's bigger things to worry about than, you know, whether my ego has been broken by, by this. Yeah. Which doesn't always happen. No. And by this time, the third phase of the battle is underway. Um, so Hath is still fighting against the iron brigade in Herbst woods and there the union line will eventually collapse and they will take positions in the defensive position of cemetery Hill. And, they are running through Gettysburg to get there. They're just like running through the town and Hancock is standing on the hill to get them in their defensive positions. And um, like him standing on the hill would have been probably very inspirational to the troops. Yeah. And this is where he really is remarkable. This leading into day two. Um, yeah. He just, he steps up to the ball, makes a name for himself. Mm-hmm. Hancock, the superb. Almost brings him to the White House. That's who does he lose against again? Oh shit! Is it Garfield? It might be. It's Garfield. It's it's definitely right. Garfield. I think. Okay, I'll take your word. I for think it. I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm thinking they're around the same age. If Barry's wrong or... though, for sure tweet it out. Yeah, I think it's Garfield. <laughs> if I'm ever wrong, no need to tweet. So. Um. So the Union line ends up collapsing from Rhodes's renewed assault from the north. And Heth returns again with his entire division. And um, so the last part of the battle is when Lee tells General Ewell, who has taken over what was Stonewall's command after his death in May, to carry the cemetery hill occupied by the enemy if he found it practicable, but to avoid any general engagement upon, until the arrival of other divisions of the army. And recognizing that his troops were fatigued, Ewell and his men noped the F away from doing that. They're not taking that. And that is one of the biggest what-ifs of Gettysburg. What if it had been Jackson there? You know what? It wasn't Jackson there. Nope. I think Ewell... You could play the what-if it was Jackson. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with it. But I'm not okay with saying Ewell made a mistake. No, I don't think he did at all. I think he recognized yeah. that his men were fatigued. Yeah, and then, first of all, Lee does never gives him a direct order to do it. No. So if everybody felt that Ewell should have pushed forward, they should have be mad at Lee because Lee gave him an order where he suggested, if possible, to take Cemetery Hill. Yep. And it was never a direct order. Part of that is because he didn't have all the logistics uh, of what was happening mm-hmm. there. And then I think another thing, too, is that retreat through the streets of Gettysburg. Yeah, they were fleeing there, but as a... That slows momentum down because it's not like watching a bunch of troops run across the field and you can see that it's no, empty. Exactly. You got to go street streets. by street. You don't know where people are at. So that's going to slow it down naturally. Yeah. They've already been fighting for hours. It's extremely hot. I think it was like in the eight, upper 80s. It, it was 90. 85, 90 degrees and they're fighting in wool uniforms. So, and I think it was humid as well yeah, at that time. It was. Then you have a lot of Union prisoners were taken. Mm hmm. So you have manpower dedicated to that. 
you actually have Yule sends a message to Lee looking for some reinforcements. Mm-hmm. Lee, there's Anderson's division there that does not really get used that day that Lee doesn't send up. I think it's a little unfair to criticize Lee for not doing him because I think he was keeping him in reserve because he doesn't know exactly mm-hmm. all the logistics. No, Lee doesn't. Lee's basically blind going into this battle and like, you know, good for you old for looking to his men and being like, nope, I'm not I'm not going to do that. And then on top of that, there was a rumor that his left flank was being mm-hmm. threatened. So he sends a division up there to check. And then if we just go to the basic numbers, the retreat starts around four. Yeah. 5 p.m., Hancock's got them all kind of 12,000 troops in some type of defensive position. An hour later, there's 20,000 Union troops there. And I think by the end of the night, there was 27,000, I want to say. Even if Stonewall's there, he makes that aggressive action. He's not getting it. Is he getting it? I mean, can they keep pulling, I mean, the stuff out of their ass like they had with Chancellorville? I mean, I would have I made the know. I would have made the same decision of, as you. I'm like, I'm not going up that effing hill. Like, forget it. I've been fighting all day. My troops are tired, and I'm not Jackson. And I think that Lee kind of had this thing where it's like, oh, you'll do it, like you'll do it because Jackson would do it, kind of thing. And but we don't like you know Jackson might have, but it would have been really risky. Yeah, it would have been reckless, I would argue. Maybe oh, yeah. it's successful. It's a huge gamble, though. If you're yeah. just playing percentages and Stonewall is willing to gamble, I mean, mm-hmm. um, I think the position Yule was in, I think he made the right. I think the criticism of him is very harsh and very yeah. hard. And you know what? The what ifs of history, there was no Jackson. It wasn't like Jackson was sitting there, didn't show up. Jackson was dead at this point. Yeah. And. Because I used to think that Stonewall takes it, but the more I look back, that was just me being young and dumb. Yeah, and the more I read about, too, like with Stonewall, and this is one of my unpopular opinions for the Civil War, Patrick Claiborne was more talented than Stonewall Jackson. But the reason that nobody thinks that, or it's not a popular opinion, is because there's not as much known about Claiborne, because he's in the West, what? There's a West to the Civil War? Apparently, yes, there is. There's not another battle at this time, is there? Oh, I don't know. Does it start with a V? <laughs> Vicksburg, which arguably might have been more important, was definitely more important for the Militar- Mil- Militarily, yes. Strategically, yes. Mor- morally, Gettysburg. Yeah. I think. But yeah, like, I've always been, like, when I read the story about Ewell and. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't have attacked either because it's the end of the day. And Lee also said, if practicable, and if it's like, okay, you're leaving the decision to me, then nope, I'm not doing it. I agree 100%. Yeah, and so the end of day one is going to result in, it's said to be a Union defeat. Um, So there's 9,000 casualties for the Union and 6,000 for the Confederates. Um, But things could have gone far worse if not for that badass Buford. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're handing out, I was, what I was doing is I was thinking hockey, um, the three stars of the game, you know, like yeah, how hockey Buford. does. Buford's definitely getting yeah. one. I think I think you could argue for Reynolds. Mm-hmm. You could probably argue for I think it comes down to, I'd have to hand out four. Buford, Reynolds, Hancock, and Meade. Yes. Hancock All for just. perform well. 
I I can just see Hancock up on Cemetery Hill, and he was known for colorful language, just like swearing yeah. and saying, "Get the f up here, go over there. We're gonna yeah, we're gonna kick ass." I, I will say this: one of the few coffee mugs I've ever bought was a Hancock coffee mug when I was in Gettysburg. So. I can tell you my general mead coffee mug is my most expensive mug at $23. That's too much for it's a It's worth every penny. Mug. I enjoy general mead, but he's not a $23 coffee mug worthy. He is to me. <laughs> Hancock is worth more. I would pay 23 for a Hancock coffee mug. You probably did, didn't you? I don't know. Probably. Did you get yours at Gettysburg for $23? Yes. I was there not as long ago, so it probably was a little bit cheaper. Probably $19. So during um, the evening, uh, General Hancock and Carl Schurz, they sit on this stone wall, and they're very anxious about if the Confederates are actually going to make another move to attack. And Sears states that Schurz would remember the nervousness of Hancock, but was relieved that, or his own nervousness, but was relieved that Hancock seemed nervous too. And at 525, Hancock sent a dispatch to Meade simply stating, we can fight here as the ground appears not unfavorable with good troops. And I think Hancock's saying that because there's only a quarter of the Army of the Potomac there. They've got fresh troops that can come in on July the 2nd. Yeah, and he's got a good defensive position yep. too. Um, the Confederates spend the evening... Um, like they're talking about what to do. Um, and it should be noted that none of the generals present at this meeting are called Jeb Stewart. Cause he's still not there. And Longstreet and Lee disagree over what should be done on July the 2nd. So there's already tension mounting between these two. And yeah. Because Longstreet wants to outmaneuver. He does. Me and go on a defensive yeah, and there's already, you know, we're seeing Lee. This is Lee's first battle um, without Stonewall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he and Longstreet are friends. But they're already disagreeing. And they've still got two more days to fight. So Meade arrives around midnight. And he's had word from Hancock um, that Gettysburg will be a good place to fight. So he arrives, um, and Slocum and, ha- and Howard and even Sickles all concur with this. And Meade just responds, I am glad to hear you say so, gentlemen, for it is too late to leave it. So this is where it's going to be fought for the next two days. Um, Chief Engineer of the Army of the Potomac, Governor K. Warren, is with Meade. And he also concluded with Hancock that this was the best place to fight. We came to the conclusion that it would be the best place for the Army to fight on if the army was attacked. So the Union Army is going to go into day two in a defensive position called the fish hook. And that real splitters is where we are going to leave you this evening. So the next episode, 94, I believe, will be mm-hmm. Dumbass Sickles. <laughs> yep. That gives us more time to talk about Sickles. He is an idiot. Oh, God. Um, but yes, that is day one. Let us know, um, if you have, let us know if we made any mistakes. Let us know if you disagree with our assessments and some stuff. Um, so the best area to do that, I would say is in the Facebook group page. If you're not a member, 
join that. Uh, we're up to over 300, I know. So a lot of great discussions. People have been very active. Uh, feel free to look out for us uh, on Twitter and Instagram. So uh, Twitter, this might be an avenue, too, for some discussion. Yep. Um, and then Instagram, we tend to use for our, our pictures and whatnot. But hopefully you enjoyed the episode. So I enjoy talking about it. So day one, a lot going on. Um, definitely, um, great part of the battlefield out there. Um, very accessible, um, very preserved very well. This part, the, mm-hmm. the whole battlefield of Gettysburg is. is, especially this part. Culp's Hill is still one I need to go out there and really look at. That's the hardest one to kind of get a visual on how things happen. Yeah, in it my is. Opinion. I find like but, day like day one is very easy to get a visual yeah. of what was happening because they just kind of. Yeah, they keep going back, back, and back through the town, and a lot of open area too, like where that first defensive mm-hmm. is held. Yep. by them. So, um, my recommendation: first day in Gettysburg, if you're waking up that morning, get out there, go to where Buford was around seven a.m. Mm-hmm. or so, bring a cup of coffee, uh, just kind of go out there and look. Would be my recommendation. Um, so. And then there's a lot of great individual stories. I mean, we're just giving a big picture. The great thing about this is. There's so many individual battles that take place in Archipelian outside of Reynolds <coughs> passing, excuse me, and whatnot. So, and great battlefield guides too. So, yep, there's some really um, good, like, like I said, Emerging Civil War has um, a great book. Just like I think it's on just the first day, and it gives a, a guided tour of exactly where to go. And I mean, my, like my bucket list thing is to do Gettysburg and do each day, like day one, day two, day three. That's, I actually did that when we went. That's what I want to do. And I would love to hike the whole battlefield from start to finish. We, we hiked a lot of it's very walking accessible and it's not too bad. Um, day one, um, and as well as by automobile too, it does mm-hmm. a very good job. So very accessible. It's a um, beautiful area. Um, be a great area to kind of see the sun go down to out in that West area. It, it I, Like anywhere in Gettysburg is a beautiful place to yeah. see the sunrise or the sunset. I've seen the sunset on little round top and I've also seen it set on um, what is called Hancock Ave, which is where the union line was for Pickett's charge. Yeah beautiful in both places um and again i can't emphasize enough getting to the seminary ridge museum and it's all about the first day do the tour of the cupola it is well does that cost money yeah it's over 20 dollars to do it but i can tell you i've done it once i would go back and do it again sweet because to be up there where buford was i'm the type of person that i need to have that visual of where they were in order to understand what was happening. And then with the retreat too, I believe there was like, there's a lot of individual stories within the town Yep, that goes on too, that I know they do a nice job uh, at certain spots, highlighting that, whether it's a plaque or stuff. Mm-hmm. So they do. Uh, yeah. That, that could be a cool part too. Like, you know, day one, just kind of walking the streets of the retreat. Um, so I think it may be the end of episode three. We'll tie in a talk in, where we think would be good to stay, good places to eat. I, nice right there. I think that's a great idea, Nick. Yeah. Cause so, we've both been there. So we'll have to lean mm. on you more for that since you've been there a little bit more, but um, 
Yeah, so back to our weekly um, segments. We have For the People, By the People. Yep. Do you have one ready to rock and roll? I do. So my friend Sherry, she's on Twitter. She's Sherry underscore Vasley. She's actually a principal uh, at a school. She is currently touring uh, Chickamauga. Well, she's in Atlanta right now, but today she went to Chickamauga and Lookout Mountain. And she's been posting pictures. Um, I'm friends with her on Facebook, so I got to see her pictures from Lookout Mountain and Chickamauga. She, uh, when I was at Chickamauga, when I was doing my Facebook Live, she sent me a message and said, my husband and I just booked a trip because of you. <laughs> I was like, what? And I just, I'm like, I hope you like it. Um, and apparently she's saying it is a place where Civil War geeks need to go, which is really awesome. Uh the view from Lookout Mountain today from the picture she posted was absolutely stunning. It is definitely, it is my favorite battlefield to visit, even a little bit more than Gettysburg. I'm sorry, not sorry. You got that Canadian sorry. Yeah, in sorry, there, so. I know. Yeah, sorry. Um, but yeah, she was posting pictures of that. So that's really awesome to see people out there touring the battlefields and taking in the history. And it was really awesome to see that. So thank you, Sherry, for posting that. Very cool. I mine comes from I follow this Twitter feed Super Seventy Sports, and he puts a lot of like those of you who follow sports. The seventies was not very kind when it comes to uniforms and um, <laughs> stuff too, and so he likes to highlight like a lot of the dumb uniforms. He'll highlight like the seventies athlete physique. Is also a lot different than the 2019 athlete physique. Oh, so, I, I know. I was just at the Football Hall so, of Fame and I saw that. <laughs> it's like the so, 70s. He, he tweets a lot of pictures that highlight this, but this is, I'll put this up there. I don't know if you can see this. This is Jim Leland, <laughs> who, if you follow baseball, he's one of the more famous managers. He managed uh, Pirates and Detroit. Uh, he smoked all the time, too, in the dugout back when he could. The quote goes here, even Abraham Lincoln was like, God damn, Leland, that's a tall hat. He has this baseball cap, and the top of it to sit straight up, it looks like Lincoln's top hat. Can you show it to me it, again? So, it does too. We'll have to retweet this maybe from the Rail Splitter account because the hat is ridiculous. So, um,. He's kind of a funny – if you're a sports person and you kind of get nostalgic at times for the ugly uniforms of the 70s, 80s, he's a good foul. Or she. Could be a she, too. So, yeah. And then I have this week in Lincoln. Um, today I was at school. Um, and tomorrow – uh, a former student from the Harlem Veteran Project, we are going out to basically – he went back. Um, he's gone back and redoing his documentary on the veteran that he has. So basically our class works. We interview veterans. One kid in the class takes that interview, and their responsibility for that school year is to turn it into a documentary. Um, this student's got very attached to his veteran. Anyways, we come in. We were making a shot list for what we're going to do. Dad's his doc. And he brought me a gift at him and another former student. Um, so Chandler and Maddie bought me basically a trash can of Abraham Lincoln. And it's basically Abraham Lincoln uh, wearing shades, the American flag shades, with an American um, flag like bandana that's like wrapped in a headband. It looks um, amazing. Around it. So it's 
so they know we do the podcast. So it's very nice thing. So Chandler, Maddie, I don't know if you listen or not, but thank you. So, uh, yeah, that's this week in Lincoln. So very nice to get that. So it is now in my office with my Lincoln stuff. So I did not hesitate bringing it home today. That's awesome. Anything else for the cause? I don't think so. And, um, we hope you guys are enjoying our first episode about Gettysburg. Um, we kind of overshot a little bit and thought like, Oh yeah, we'll get through day one and day two. But I think we've had a really great discussion about it and I'm looking forward to day two and day three, especially, especially Pickett's charge, but also day two as well, because I mean, sickles and little round top. So the plan right now is to do two more episodes dealing with Gettysburg. Um, and then we're going to dive in hard on a Lincoln episode. Yeah, so yep, we are. This is the game plan. So, um, And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about Gettysburg Address probably in the third one. Yep. So bear with us if you don't think you're getting enough of Lincoln. But we gave you a little bit at the beginning, gave you a little bit at the end. Um, and we have been getting a lot of good positive feedback. We are getting closer to our 100th episode. Yeah. The best way to celebrate our 100th episode, uh, one of the best ways would be if we had 50 reviews on iTunes. So help us get to 50 by 100. So go put it on pause right now and go rate us. Go tell us how awesome you think Nick is. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Well, thank you. Nice to have you back. So we appreciate you rating us. Um, And anything else, Mary? Have an awesome weekend, Rail Splitters. Yes, agreed. And go, uh, hopefully you are listening to this after the women have beat France to advance to the semifinal of the World Cup. So if not, Mary, I know it was a tough loss up in Canada. So I don't care. Was there a lot of uproar though? The penalty kick I heard was quite over. What? Okay, like honestly, what are you talking about? The women's World Cup. I'm not following. Dude, <laughs> you're the worst Canadian. I, I am. I can tell you that Carlos Santana is going to be in the All Star Game next weekend on first base. I think from All the right. from the tribe. Ridiculous. You know what we need? We need Jeremy back on the show so we can know how our Lincoln soccer team's doing in England. I know. Because so, I just know how the tribe's there. doing right now. Oh. There's some. Never mind. Comes I'm, a, one today. I'm, a bad, I'm a bad Canadian. Yeah, you're a terrible Canadian. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know what? With malice towards none and charity for all. Peace out.